Morning, everyone. Good to have you here this morning for the service. We started last Sunday uh, in a series of messages on biblical perspectives on the Middle East, uh, trying to see what Scripture says to help us think through the things that are going on in the Middle East that are obviously so disturbing to uh, to all of us. And uh, so this morning we're continuing that. We talked last week about how all this conflict developed and some of the reasons for it. And I uh, want to move a little bit further in that discussion uh, this morning. In June of 2002, President George W. Bush, in a speech, outlined what he called his roadmap for peace in the Middle East. It was a plan that he hoped would work out to bring peace and uh, get the Palestinians and the Israelis to no longer be at one another's throats and be fighting with one another. And as the case with most peace plans, that one was welcomed by most people. Um, and there was a lot of hope that perhaps this peace plan would work. As you well know, it did not. But there was a lot of hope that it would. But there was also opposition to the roadmap to peace. In fact, there are people who have a constant opposition to peace in the Middle East at all. Uh, there's a group of evangelical Christians who are sometimes referred to as Christian Zionists who believe that the conflict is all part of the plan of God. They believe that it has to take place because they believe that it is God's will, God's plan for Israel to defeat the Palestinians, take possession of the entire uh, area of the Middle East, or at least of Palestine, and uh, thereby to uh, fulfill the promises that God had made to the people of Israel. Now, a part of this thinking is an assumption that I'm going to challenge this morning. And that is the assumption that the ancient nation of Israel we read about in the Old Testament is equivalent to the modern nation of Israel that we hear about today. That there is a continuity between the two, that they are one and the same, that the promises that God made to the people of Israel in the Old Testament find their fulfillment, we are told, in the modern nation of Israel. In Genesis 15, 18, God had said to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And that's a great promise, and it's an interesting statement. And it's kind of interesting to think how it would ever be worked out, because if you look on a map, everything from the great river of Egypt, the Nile, all the way to the river Euphrates includes a lot more than Palestine. It includes the eastern part of Egypt. It includes most of Saudi Arabia, it includes all of Iraq, all of Syria, all of Jordan, as well as all of Palestine. So there may be a sense in which the, uh, the promise reaches too much in the way that people are thinking about it today. I'm hearing a roar in this thing. Is anybody else? A little bit of roar. Is it bothering anyone? Okay. Well, I was hoping you'd say yes. But, you know. <laughs> All right, it's not bothering anybody else. All right, so here we go. All right, uh, so the Christian Zionists then believe that all this conflict is taking place is good. They think it's a step along the way in the fulfilling of the promises of God. Now, many who make that identification between Old Testament Israel and the modern nation of Israel, what we might call political Israel, fall into the theological camp of what's called dispensational 
premillennialism. And I apologize for those two big long words. I tried to think of another way to put it, but I don't know of one. Dispensational premillennial, premillennialism. I was trying to think of another word because I have a hard time saying premillennialism without stumbling over it. Uh, but that, that's what it is. Well, let me describe for you a little bit some of the outlines, uh, basic beliefs of dispensational premillennialism. There's the belief, first of all, that Jesus will return, not just in the clouds, but return to the earth, in fact, return to Jerusalem. And that when he does, that he will set up a, an earthly kingdom for a period of a thousand years, and he will sit on the literal throne of David in a reconstructed temple in the actual city of Jerusalem. And so all of that being the case, that being the belief, then, then somehow Israel must take repossession of all of Palestine, must take repossession of the Temple Mount in order to build this new temple there and for all of this to come about. And so this is uh, some of the thinking of the people who, uh, who believe that. The idea is that this millennial kingdom then is the focal point of all of history and is the focal point of the Bible. And that everything is moving toward that and toward the establishment of that millennial kingdom. And therefore, uh, the victory of the people of Israel over all of Palestine is a necessary part of that plan. Now, that's one of the reasons why dispensational premillennialists tend to be Middle East watchers. If you ever watched any of the uh, programming of Pat Robertson, for example, uh, and another man by the name of Jack Van Impey, they were both famous for, as they were talking about these things, holding up a newspaper. And there'd be headlines about the Middle East. Every time something would break out in the Middle East, they would hold up a newspaper and they would say, see, and then they would tell you how this fulfilled biblical prophecy. And they did that for years. Both of them are dead now, but they did it most of their lives telling people that the uh, promises in the Bible were being fulfilled in the events going on in uh, the Middle East. What I want to do this morning is to show why I'm convinced that that identification of ancient Israel with the modern nation of Israel is a mistake. I don't believe they're one and the same. Please understand, I am not saying this as in any way a criticism of the modern nation of Israel. I'm not trying to say that. I'm not trying to decide who's right and who's wrong in any of the Middle Eastern disputes. I'm simply trying to point out that this theological position that some people hold, that ancient Israel equals modern Israel, is an error. And there are four reasons for that, and so here are the four. First of all, because the New Testament or they, says that the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Christ and in the church not in an earthly kingdom of Israel. That's what the New Testament says, that the fulfillment of the prophecies is in Christ and the church, not in uh, the nation of Israel. If you look at Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 24, and I wish we had time to work through this in some detail, uh, but we don't. But uh, it, in that passage, Romans 11, 11 to 24, Paul explains the role of Israel now that Christ has come. What happens to the promises God made to Israel now that Christ has come? There were some, obviously, in the church in Rome, some Gentile Christians who felt that they somehow were superior or had the upper hand over their Jewish brethren because now the church was primarily Gentile rather than primarily Jewish in the way that it had started out. 
And so Paul writes this section to them and he says, no, think of it this way, that you are all part of an olive tree. And the roots of that olive tree and the trunk of that olive tree are Jewish. And you, he says to the Gentile Christians, are from a wild olive tree and you've been grafted in to this Jewish olive tree. And so it's not you who supports the roots of the tree, it's the root who supports you. You have been privileged to come in to what God had done for his people Israel and to now be a part of that. He goes on to say that some of the branches of that Jewish tree have been lopped off. Why? Because they refuse to believe in Jesus. Then he says, but they can be grafted back in again, verse 23, if, notice the if, they do not persist in unbelief. If they don't keep rejecting Christ, he says, they can be put back on the tree. And so you'll have a tree there that is both Jewish and Gentile. That's, that's his illustration of the church in that text, Romans 11, 11 to 24. And so they can get back onto the tree, but it has to be through faith in Jesus. That's where the promises are fulfilled is in Jesus. It's not in the establishment of a millennial kingdom in the, the land of Israel uh, or a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and all those other things that the Bible really doesn't talk about. It is in Jesus and what he has done. It is not through the establishment of a modern nation of Israel. And then you go back in the book of Romans to chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and Paul says this. He says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. That's an amazing statement because what Paul has done there is radically redefine what a Jew is. He says that a genuine Jew in the sight of God is not simply somebody who is a physical descendant of Abraham, not just someone who has undergone the ritual of circumcision, but someone who has been circumcised, if you will, by God's spirit through faith in Jesus. That's who is truly the, uh, the people of God, he says. And then you look at 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12. We talked about this one a few months back. Uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, where he talked about the Old Testament prophets. And he, he said they searched and inquired about what they were talking about. They didn't understand fully their own messages. They didn't know who they were talking about. And they searched and inquired to find out what was being said through them in the, by the Spirit of Christ and it turns out that what they were talking about was about Jesus because he says these things have now been fulfilled for us. He's talking to the church, talking to Christians. These things have now been fulfilled for you. He doesn't say anything about them being fulfilled. They searched and inquired and found out, oh, God is going to recreate the kingdom of Israel. It's not what he says. He said they searched and inquired and found out that all this was about the church. Then there's Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, which you just heard read uh, a few moments ago. Very well, by the way, with all those long sentences and commas and everything. But Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, where Paul says that in Christ, God has created one new man in place of the two. He says he, through the cross, Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, broke that wall down, 
and he says it was represented by the law, commandments, and ordinances. And so he took that down, he broke that down, and he combined both Jews and Gentiles into one new humanity, one new man, the church, the body of Christ. He's combined them together into one. It isn't as if the church came along and kicked out Israel. That's not the point. It isn't as though the church has come along as a replacement for Israel. It is the church that has come along and enveloped both Israel and all Gentiles who will believe in Jesus. That's, that's what we need to understand. That's what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility and created in himself one new man in place of the two. You know, when you, when you think about it and you ask yourself, why did Jesus die on the cross? What did his death accomplish? We automatically want to say he accomplished the forgiveness of our sins. He accomplished the forgiveness of my sins. He accomplished the forgiveness of your sins. But he did more than that. He also created a new humanity. He also created a new group of people, one body, the church, made up of both Jews and Gentiles who had been at odds with one another from time immemorial. So God's ultimate plan was not the exaltation of a single nation of Israel, but the creation of the church, including both Jews and Gentiles. And so the modern nation of Israel is not the focal point of the Bible. You'll hear people say that over and over and over again. It simply isn't the case. It simply isn't true. The focal point is Jesus and the salvation that he brought for both Jews and Gentiles. But then a second reason why it's a mistake to identify modern Israel with ancient Israel is that the New Testament refers to the church as the new Israel. That's the way that the New Testament describes the church. Now, you might say, well, I looked in my Bible or concordance and I can't find that expression, new Israel. That's right, it's not there. It's never directly said, but it is implied in many ways. Think about it this way for just a minute. How many, how many apostles did Jesus select? Okay, somebody in here knows that. How many? 12, all right, good, good. I thought we gotta revamp our Sunday school program. Um, <laughs> All right, 12, 12 apostles, why 12? And think about this, he had 12 apostles and when one of them defected, being Judas, who abandoned his office according to the first chapter of the book of Acts, he was replaced with a man by the name of Matthias. Now, you don't know a single thing that Matthias ever did because the Bible never mentions him again. Matthias is chosen to replace Judas and that's the last we ever hear of him. We don't know anything he said. We don't know anything he did. I'm not suggesting he wasn't a real person. I think he was. But the point is, his selection is recorded. Why? So that we will understand that there are 12 apostles. Later, when the apostles who fulfilled their role, unlike Judas, died for their faith, as James did not too many chapters later in the book of Acts, he's not replaced. The others are not replaced. What's the point being made there? is that the people of God that Jesus was creating is founded upon the apostles and the prophets. And there are 12 apostles corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. It's so obvious what Jesus was doing. He saw himself as creating a new people of Israel. You can see an example of that when you look in Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 to 14. When John has that that wonderful vision of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. 
that comes down out of heaven from, from God. He says that city has 12 foundations, and on the 12 foundations are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. But it also has 12 gates, and on the gates, each of those 12 gates is written the names of the 12 apostles. You see, they represent the people of God from the Old Covenant and from the New. The Old Israel and the New Israel brought together, not in the physical land of Israel, but brought together in the holy city, the New Jerusalem. Then there's Galatians chapter, 16, uh, chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. And listen carefully to this. Paul says near the close of his letter to the Galatians, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. And that's the same thing he said in Romans 2, isn't it? Doesn't make any difference whether you're circumcised or not. Doesn't make any difference whether you are a physical descendant of Abraham or not. That's not what is important, he says. But a new creation. How do we have that new creation? Jesus himself told us in John 3, we were born of the water and the spirit. When we were born of the water and the spirit, then we are a new creation in Christ. Then Paul says in verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That's the closest the New Testament ever gets to calling the church the new Israel, but you can see the idea. Now, if you're reading the English Standard Version as I am or the New International Version, it kind of sounds like two groups, doesn't it? Peace be upon all who walk by this rule and upon the Israel of God. But if you look at verse 15, that's obviously not what Paul is saying. What is the rule, he says? Peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this rule. What's the rule? It's what he says in verse 15, that neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. And so what he's saying is, peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this rule, even upon the Israel of God. In other words, that's who the Israel of God is, is the people who walk according to that rule. If you look in most commentaries on the book of Galatians, you'll find them interpreting it that way because that's what uh, it seems to be Paul's intention based on verse, six, uh, verse 15. J.B. Lightfoot, I think, paraphrased this uh, beautifully in, in his commentary over a century ago. He said, on all those who shall guide their steps by this rule, May peace and mercy abide, for they are the true Israel of God. They are the true Israel of God. You and I are part of the Israel of God. We are his chosen people because we follow his son. His plan all along was to send his son into the world to die for the sins of the world so that everyone, both Jews and Gentiles, who, who puts their trust in him could have new spiritual life and we would then become the Israel of God. That's who we are. The true Israel uh, does not represent those who are circumcised, but those who have faith in Jesus. So it's a mistake to look at the modern nation of Israel that we read about and hear about in headlines every day. It's a mistake to look at that and say, that's the same as Old Testament Israel, and there's continuity between the two. And what God is really concerned about is that modern nation. That's just a mistake. That goes against what scripture says. Number three, here's the third reason, because Jesus said that his kingdom was not an earthly kingdom, but in fact, a spiritual kingdom. When Jesus stood before Pilate, remember that Pilate asked him the question, are you a king? 
Are you a king? We know what Pilate was concerned about. Pilate wanted to know, are you an insurrectionist? Are you going to lead a rebellion against Rome? Uh, do I need to be worried about you? Do I need to be concerned that you're going to try to uh, kill me and overthrow the Roman rule of Palestine? Is that what this is all about? And Jesus says what in John 18, verse 36? My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, he says. You look at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the apostles. He told them to wait in Jerusalem until they received power from on high. And they asked him this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know what they wanted to know? They wanted to know, okay, Jesus, we saw you do that, that crucifixion and resurrection, and it was amazing. But now are you going to do what we have always thought the Messiah would do? Now are you going to set Israel back up as the most powerful nation? Are you going to set us up as a powerful nation as we were in the days of David and in the days of Solomon? Are we going to be free and independent again? Are you now going to do that? Will you now, having done all this other stuff, will you now do that? And remember what Jesus said to them. He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father set by his own authority. But he says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria in the ends of the earth. He says, you don't worry about that. That's not your business. That's not what this is all about. Let me tell you what your business is all about, he says. It is about being my witnesses, starting from Jerusalem and then going to the ends of the earth. Don't get focused on the wrong things, he said. A major problem with the dispensational premillennial view is on the focus on a physical kingdom. The focus on a physical kingdom. The, this obsession with an earthly kingdom, an earthly Israel, an earthly kingdom that Jesus sets up in the land of Israel. And a physical temple and the physical throne of David and all that goes with that. That's one of the weakest parts of their, their whole understanding because one of the things that that does is that it takes away from the focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that, folks, is the gospel, isn't it? It's not about a, a, a land somewhere on this earth. It's about Jesus and about his death and resurrection. It's about his spirit coming to be a part of, of all of us and giving us life. That's the focal point. And so premillennialism misses all of that because it says, well, everything that Jesus did was just a prelude to the real thing. It was just a prelude to the setting up of this king. No, you can't tell me that the death of our Lord on the cross was a prelude. It was in one sense, it was a prelude to the resurrection. So his resurrection was just a prelude. No, it wasn't a prelude. That was the event. That was what God was accomplishing. So that by that, he could bring eternal life to all of us. You see, dispensationalism, uh, premillennialism is woefully deficient in his understanding of the church. You know what dispensational premillennialists say about the church? The church was a mistake. They say the church was never in the plan of God at all. The church was never part of his thinking. It was never what he had in mind. What he had in mind was to send his son to the earth, to the people of Israel, set up his kingdom, and that would be it. But the plan went awry, and they crucified him, and so he had to shift over to plan B. And plan B is the church. 
The church is called uh, by dispensational premillennialists a parenthesis in history. Their terminology is this, that when Jesus died on the cross, the prophetic clock stopped. What God had been planning and prophesying through the prophets all along had moved right up to the time of Jesus coming. But when he died, the clock stopped and it won't start again until he comes again. And then the prophetic clock will begin to tick once again, and then he will come and establish his earthly kingdom. That's what they say. So the church, they say, uh, is a mistake. The church is a part of the failure of God's plan. It was not God's plan. I want you to open your Bible right now and look at it. Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11, and see what Paul says about that. Paul says that it was the eternal purpose of God. And you know what the word eternal means. Always has been, always will be. It was the eternal purpose of God that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The church is not an accident. The church was God's plan all along. That's what God was moving toward. He was moving toward sending his son to die on the cross to bring into existence a people based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And through those people, through you and me, and this is a great calling for us to make known to the whole universe the manifold wisdom of God. And the dispensationalists say, no, church is an accident. And part of that whole thinking is that ancient Israel and modern Israel are the same thing. The promises made that you and I understand to be about Christ and the church. They said, no, it's not about that. It's all about establishing that kingdom over the land of Israel. That's a mistake. It's just false thinking. And then there's a fourth reason. There's been a change of covenants. And in the new covenant, Israel's national interests are not a priority. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says there was going to come a time, he says, when I'm going to establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I had with their fathers, which they broke, he said. It's going to be a different kind of covenant. We know from reading the Old Testament that repeatedly, over and over, the people of Israel broke the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. They kept breaking that covenant, and finally God said, I'm just going to create a new covenant, I'm going to establish a new covenant. And he said, I'm going to write my law on their hearts, right? It's not going to be a, a law written on tablets of stone. It's going to be written on their hearts. And he says, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. No one will need to teach his brother or teach his neighbor and say, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about the covenant, because they will all know me. There has been a complete change of covenants. When did that happen? Look at Luke 22 and verse 20. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the, the bread and gave it to his disciples. And then he took that cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, he established that new covenant. It came into being then. That is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. The fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 is not going to be in some, some place in Israel somewhere down the road in the future. The fulfillment of the new covenant was in the death of Jesus. 
we read Hebrews 8, 8 to 13 together, which quotes Jeremiah 31. And the writer of Hebrews quotes those words, and then he goes ahead and he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first covenant what? Obsolete. He makes the first covenant obsolete. That nationalistic covenant that God had with the descendants of Abraham has become obsolete. Why? Because it wasn't fulfilled? No, because it was fulfilled. It was fulfilled in Jesus. And since it's been fulfilled in Jesus, it's obsolete. To say that modern Israel is still the people of the covenant is to ignore the reality of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 34 says, They shall all know me. No one will need to teach his neighbor and, and teach his brother. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I want to ask you a question. Do you think that's true of the modern nation of Israel? Do you think that's true in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and all those other places right now? Are you aware that according to the surveys, fully one-third of the population of, of Israel are self-declared atheists? And another third fall into the category of either agnostic or, as they describe it, secular. That's two-thirds of the whole population that either deny the existence of God altogether or question the existence of God or ignore the existence of God. Does that sound to you like the people of the covenant? Does that sound to you like the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 34? It doesn't to me. It's not possible that that's the case. So there's the four reasons that I would say that it's a mistake to identify the modern nation of Israel with ancient Israel. But before we stop, I want to mention two texts that are sometimes used to support that identification of ancient Israel, modern Israel. The first is Genesis 17, verse 8. Genesis 17, 8 says, I will give to your offspring, this is God speaking to Abraham, I will give to your offspring this land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. An everlasting possession. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? An everlasting possession. And so people look at that and say, see, God promised the land to the physical descendants of Abraham forever. It is theirs as an everlasting possession. Well, that was true while the old covenant was in effect. And it would have been true, it would have remained true if Israel had been faithful to the covenant, but they weren't. You see, what people misunderstand is that promise was never unconditional. God never made that promise unconditional. Uh, it's what he says in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 27 and 28. He says, I'm giving you my law, I'm giving you my commandment, giving you my covenants, and if you keep them, you'll be blessed. If you don't, he says, the land will vomit you out. The land will vomit you out. You'll get expelled from the land. The land will vomit you out, he says. And then there's Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45. That promise was fulfilled according to Joshua 21, 43 to 45. Here's what it says. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. This statement is made at the end of the book of Joshua. They have been through the 40 years in the wilderness after being in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. They've come to the promised land. Joshua has led them into the land. They have conquered it. And now he says uh, in Joshua 21, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And listen to this. It's almost as if 
It's almost as if the writer understood that someday people were going to get this messed up. Because he says, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. You see, what happens is the dispensationalists tell us, well, but if, if the land of Israel is not the land of promise, and if the uh, people of Israel can't establish in that nation and take over that whole land, then the promises of God are not valid. No, the promises of God were fulfilled. Joshua 21 says so. The promises of God are always fulfilled, and he fulfilled that promise. With the new covenant, something much better is promised than a land. It is a heavenly city. It is a new Jerusalem. It's a new creation. It's something so much better than that. We don't have to fight for it. We don't have to fight for it. God gives it to us by his grace through Jesus. The other one that's often quoted in, in defense of that identification is Romans eleven twenty six, 26, where Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. And people point to that and say, see, that, that fits right perfectly into our scheme of things, that Jesus comes, sets up his earthly kingdom, and during that period of time, all Israel is saved. All, all of the Jews come to believe in Jesus. Well, that's an interesting statement. So all Israel will be saved. And we might take it that way, except for one problem. Paul has already said they won't. He's already said they won't. In uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 6, he says, For not all Israel who are, descended, who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Do you get that? Just because you're descended from Abraham doesn't mean you're part of Israel. You have to be part of Israel God's spiritual Israel through faith in Jesus. In chapter 11, verses 20 to 23, he says some of those branches were broken off because of unbelief, but he says they can be grafted back in again if, if they do not persist in unbelief. He didn't say they're going to automatically be grafted back in. Earlier in that 11th chapter, he had said, that he, he said, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles in order to make my fellow Jews jealous so that I can save some of them. He never said that they were all going to be saved. And in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, he said the blessings of God's salvation and also judgment are based on what we do, based on what we do, whether we are Jew or Gentile, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, he says, for God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Just ask yourself this question. If God, if God saves everyone who's a physical descendant of Abraham or everyone who lives in the land of Palestine today, and he doesn't save everybody else, is he showing partiality? I'd, I'd say so, wouldn't you? I'd say so. You get an automatic pass. If you're descended from Abraham, it's what we're told. And that's not what Scripture says. God shows no partiality. Everybody has to come to Jesus the same way, by faith. So what about chapter 11, verse 26? So all Israel will be saved. I think that what he's talking about is that spiritual Israel that he's already defined in chapter 2. That spiritual Israel, both Jews and Gentiles, who are in that one body of Christ. See, the, the Bible's not about the modern nation of Israel and what happens there. You want to know what it's about? 
It's about you. It's about me. It's about all of us, and it's about whether or not we receive the salvation that God offers us. Who did Jesus die for? Everybody. He died for us all. How do we come to him? Same way. Because we believe in him, we trust in him. We're willing to confess our faith in him. We're willing to be baptized into him for the forgiveness of our sins. We've, we've repented and turned away from a life of sin and turned to following him. That's what the Bible is all about. Go read the book of Acts and see what the apostles preached. They didn't preach Israel. They preached salvation in Jesus. You know, you and I can't affect one thing about the outcome of the Middle East conflicts, can we? We can't do anything about it. We wish we could. If we could, we would. We can't do one thing about it. But we can be certain of the outcome of our eternity. We can be certain of that if we're willing to turn to Christ and receive the salvation that he offers. That's what Scripture's about. That's what it's telling us. That's what it's telling you today. So if you want to be part of the people of God, you want to be one of God's true Israel, you want to be, you want to be a part of that body that includes all of humanity that are willing to put their trust in Jesus, then why don't you come today and confess him and be baptized in him, begin to live that life in his name. You're invited to come. Let's